Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Welcome once again, dear listener. This is David Eastall, and this is the C86 Show. As always, playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. And as you know, each week we like a special guest. This this week it is going to be the turn of Justin Sullivan from New Model Army, who I spoke to quite recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. So I've got that interview that I'll break up into probably four easy to digest little segments for your enjoyment alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party rolling, I think we'll play your favourite of mine. Yes, this is the one. It's titled 51st State of America. Look out of your windows, watch the skies. Read all the instructions with bright blue eyes. With W-I-S, please. Yeah, proud American sons We know how to clean our teeth And how to strip down a gun Cause we're the There you go. That is New Model Army in the track titled 51st State of America, as if you needed to know. Actually, just called 51st State. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And this week's special guest is going to be Justin Sullivan from the band, who I spoke to a few weeks ago. As I said, I'm just repeating myself. Um, So I've got that interview alongside some exciting other information about the band because they have a new album that has just come out titled From Here. And we'll be playing a new uh, track from that very soon. But um, as we often do, as you get to a certain age, like to do some admin, you can contact me. Um, 
if you so wish, on Facebook, Twitter, or even Instagram. I'm that down with the kids. You can go to the at C86 show. I will be there and uh, do keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Just delete it and um, see a therapist. They'll sort it out. Um, and also, all the shows that I've been doing for nearly three years have been archived. And you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. So there you go. Anyway, New Model Army. That's... That's why we're here today. And uh, like I said, they've got a new album out titled From Here, which will blow your mind. So before we have the first part of the interview, I think we'll play a track from the album. This is titled Never Arriving. I think you'll like it.
There you go, Charpan Sands. That's new on Model Army and a track titled Never Arriving. That's come from their new album from here. And also the band are going to do a huge tour during the autumn, if not now. But yes, they're going to be in Europe throughout October and then are going to be in the UK November, December time. And they're going to be in Norwich, not Norwich, Cambridge on the 15th of November as well as various other dates. So do check that out. They have got a very good website, which is newmodelarmy.org. Anyway, this is going to be the first part of my interview with Justin, where I began by asking or saying about the new album. And um, yes, the creative process and the excitement, plus also the sound of it, and uh, still having things, things still to sing about. And this was his reply or response. Justin, take it away. I think to some extent the same thing has come around, but you see them differently. You know, times change, or, or you know, um, or your angle of vision changes. And I think we, were, I've always tried to do that anyway. Change, you know, if I'm going to sing about the same thing that I've sort of sung about before, then then can we sing from a different angle? Yes. I mean, and but I, I, I mean, we've always, we've always, there's never a shortage of stuff to write about. Um, you know, where all the world unfolds, our lives unfold, and we've never had any kind of agenda or an idea about what we ought to sing about. Do you know what I mean? We just write what we write. Yes. Uh, we actually, I mean, that generally is true to the, to the band in the sense we've never had a, we've never got stuck anywhere. And we've never, we, we haven't even got a genre. And I mean, it's a few years ago now we played at a folk festival followed by a metal festival, followed by a hippie festival, followed by uh, a goth festival successive weekends with basically the same songs and I can't think of anybody else that do that No, I guess the closest was vaguely I suppose the Levelers and they they sort of touched on a bit of this and a bit of that but not quite to that extent they wouldn't have well, done they, they, they had very much roots in, in folk music and you know, and then they came out at the sort of same time as Rave so then they had that element in their stuff as well Yes, they they but, had the um, travellers. The... We all we all. The, 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 my first love was always, always Tamla Motown, and there were people are slightly surprised by that. But I, but actually in New Model Army music, there's tons and tons and tons of um, old soul stuff. Yes. because that's uh, that's my first love really, and actually with Stuarts and, and Roberts in the early days as well. And we we were all kind of into that. Yeah, and, and basically that act, that. The, the the band starts with the rhythm section. It's all about bass and drums. I mean, every band is about the bass and the drummer, really. 
Um, yeah. uh, you know, people used to talk about you know talk about the Clash, and they talk about Joe's drummer and Mick Jones, but they're missing the point that the Clash were good because the drummer and bass player was so good. Well, that's true, and I always remember uh, it was interesting. You and mentioned we, we we sort of started at that point, um, you know, that it's all about bass and drums, partly because I couldn't play guitar anyway, and. Um, and we, well, we've continued that, so that's still by absolutely the sort of accent of what we do. Well, it's interesting because I always remember thinking when the Redskins appeared, there was like it, that was um, almost like Motown meets the Clash, which I thought was the perfect combination, really. Um, if you can remember that, that kind of yes. Well, rhythm sections always because you had Sly and Robbie, then you had people like Fleetwood Mac and and John McVie, well Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, and obviously Charlie Watt and. Um, and dear Bill Wyman, so so it is kind of one of those things. But look, so just going, is it possible just to find out a little bit about your kind of childhood and the background to your musical moment when it all started well, to develop? You can, you can if you like, although one of the reasons for, for doing From Here this year, and we did rush it, we really started working in January and we were in the studio by March and then it was done. Um, because we were aware that next year is our 40th anniversary and everybody would want to talk about the past, most of which I've forgotten yes. and don't have very much interest in. No. And, um, and so we thought, well, uh, we'll have to deal with that next year, but let's, let's do this album this year. Thank you. So, uh, so every interview uh, I've done to do with this album, which has been an awful lot, that people have tried to talk to me about the past, and, and I've gone, no, let's do that next year. Well, that's fair enough. That's absolutely no. That's absolutely fine. No, it's always always curious because I suppose I was talking to Joseph Porter, and I suppose I, I was quite surprised with his kind of some of his musical influences and passions. And I thought, oh, okay, I didn't, I had not sort of appreciated that you you had a love I, of. Pro- I think that you have to start with the fact that New Model Army is a band, and although that I'm the only surviving member of the original band, in fact, I was the only surviving member of the original band by 1985. Um, but that that we we have a sort of slow organic turnover of members. Every five or ten years, someone new arrives, and that is kind of been very good for us because one new person changes all the dynamics in the group. Yes. Um, but we still operate very much like a band, and everybody that's ever been in New Model Army, we all like different music. We don't have very much in common. Uh, which is interesting. I remember uh, some years ago now, we were all sat around a table one time having dinner, and we tried to come up with one album in the history of music that we all unreservedly loved, and we couldn't agree on one. And I think that's unusual for a band. Yes. Um, so we all really come from different places musically. And then this thing that we make, unsurprisingly, doesn't quite fit in anywhere. Yes. It's sort of got touches of all these different things coming in. Well, if you take the current band, Marshall is a blues guy. You know, his, his hero is B.B. King. He's absolutely a blues man. Um, Kerry, his parents were um, uh, folk musicians, harpist and hammer dulcimer. And uh, his brother, uh, he's got two brothers. One is in uh, the harp player in Florence and the Machine, and the other one is um, drummer in Extreme Noise Terror and several other metal bands. And Kerry comes mostly from a sort of metal background, metal, 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 or folk. Yes. Um, not very much rock, and certainly not very much uh, the soul stuff. Dean comes from a psychedelic background. All his favourite records are 60s psychedelic stuff. And Michael is more of a rock guy. 
and I'm a soul guy. Yes. So, so we take all those different sort of things and, and make something that we think is interesting. <laughs> so when you, so when and everybody gets through, and everybody goes into different periods. You know, I had a real big hip hop period in the in the nineties and, and stuff like that. You know? Yes. Well, I suppose I grew up. I was really obsessed with John Peel, and I recorded his show every night. This was kind of starting from the eighties, and so it was a kind of he was my musical navigator. So anything he played, bizarrely, I sort of. I suppose I was at that age where I just said, oh, yes, the Bundu Broys, I love them, you know, early hip-hop with Public Enemy and even LL Cool J and Steady B, and I sort yeah. of adored that, and, and any indie band, and then obviously Extreme Noise Terror and, and Napalm Death, it was like, yep, love them, go and see them live. So, you know, he was, yeah, he he was great, but it did mean that you went to a lot of, you know, like, and like I said, Sly and Robbie and the Taxi Gang, those kind of epic kind of four-hour gigs or three-hour gigs that they used to do were, were sort of stunning. So it was... Yes, it, it's always good to, to play with I mean, and, and, and anyway, the genre thing is a bit artificial in the sense if you talk to anyone that likes music, as you've just said about yourself, you know, we all like different stuff. We've all got hugely different collections anyway. Yes. You know, of, of different, you know. So when, when this album was coming together, did you, which has just been sort of, um, yeah, I think it's coming out next week, isn't it, or this week? Yeah, next week. It's, it's, it's that close. I mean, when did it start? When did you start sort of, you know, writing it and sort of getting it into the studio? Towards the end of last year, we were sort of, I was doodling around with a few ideas. But actually, we came to Christmas, I think we had two and a half songs. And we went, look, we want to do an album, in which case we've got to finish it by May, which means we've got to be in the studio by March. We'd better get a, a move on. So uh, we just sat in, a, sat in our rehearsal room and wrote. I mean, yes. that's a lot. It's a lot. To, it's a lot down to me. But the way we write tends to be the same: is that we we collect we collect from every member of the band musical ideas, a lot of drum beats, especially some bass lines, a bit of a jam that we did in a sound check, some chords, a bit of melody, a keyboard riff, a guitar riff, whatever, and that goes into a cupboard marked musical ideas. And all the time, like all writers, I've got notebooks and, and a dictaphone on my phone, and, and so I'm, you know, coming up with things. Things, and that's the other cupboard, which is stuff I want to write about. And uh, and then you wait till the cupboards are full, and these days they're pretty much always full. <laughs> and then you go, now we're going to write an album. So you just pull out a drum beat, and you go, well, let's start with that, like that. What about those chords? Oh, that's interesting. Um, the, maybe that lyrical idea sort of sits with it. And you write something, and the first thing you write is always rubbish. And you t- throw it away. And you p- but you pull out another idea. So, so you're never kind of stuck looking at a piece of paper or looking at a guitar going, what shall I, you know, where do you start? Because you, your starting point, you've got so many starting points in the cupboards waiting. So then it's pretty, it, 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 it's easy enough, really. It just takes a lot of time. Yes. So, so for January, February, I was pretty much in the studio 18 hours a day. And I work especially with Michael, who's our drummer, and uh, who's a very, very good producer like most drummers. And he's very good at sort of coming up with ideas and listening. And Kerry, the wonderfully creative bass player and very multi-instrumentalist, unfortunately lives a long way away, so he was coming in every now and again. And then Marshall and Dean coming in every now and again, coming up with ideas or commenting on where we were going and, and it was like that. And then by the end of February, we had a bunch of songs. 
And um, we decided to work with Lee and Jamie again, who Lee Smith and Jamie Lockhart, who produced Winter, uh, our last album. And uh, they didn't want to work in their studio in Leeds, which is a great studio, actually, but it's quite small. And Winter had this kind of slightly claustrophobic feeling of a, a, a very loud band in a very small room, because that's what it was. And they found this place in Norway, which is perhaps the greatest studio in the world, bar none. Not only is it in the most beautiful place I can possibly imagine, but also it's a fantastic studio in itself. And we managed to get nine days in there in March. And right. we thought, we better be bloody ready. Um, but when Lee and Jamie came around to our rehearsal room and sort of work, uh, you know, talk about the songs and, and play through the songs and stuff, they didn't really want us to be note perfect before we went because they wanted to leave a lot of the, you know, what happened musically to chance and to the place and to the feeling we'd have being there. So, so the, to you know, to allow the amazing place to kind of feed into the music, and it did really. Yeah. And we thought quite a lot about it before we went because. Having made the kind of claustrophobic album, we thought that we'd like to make something which is kind of big and open, um, with a big drum sound, that big natural drum sound. And that place has got an amazing big room which just sounds amazing. We wanted that sound, so we thought that if we're going to have, you know, the big drums and Michael's a very Tom Tom orientated drummer, lots of big heavy Tom rhythms. Um, and you want the natural ambience of that, and you want bass guitar, then if you're going to have other guitars, you need to get them out of the way. So we made the decision that all the other guitars should be either, either acoustics or kind of clean electrics like telecasters and stuff. Yes. So, and that way you could make so you could have this kind of thundering bottom end and still have plenty of guitars. And that is the first part of my interview, uh, Interview, yes, with Justin Sullivan from New Model Army. And as I said, they have a new album out and tour coming up so you can find out much more about them. Um, yes, if you just go to their website and probably on their Facebook page and all that other malarkey, it's all there. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. One more song, or well, not one more song, another track and then more chat. But this is titled Brave New World.
Indeed, more anthemic sounds from the new model army with a track titled Brave New World. This is David Esau, this is the C86 show, and this is going to be the second part of my interview with Justin as we were talking about the importance of the producer, engineer, and all the other exciting malarkey. I hope you're making notes. I will test you at the end. Anyway, this is Justin's response to that interesting point that I just made. I hope. Anyway, Justin, take it away. I th- it's interesting about producers. Yeah, I, I'm coming around to the school that you should... You know, we've got a bit of a studio in Bradford. We we can produce stuff ourselves. But the thing about producing yourselves is that when you're producing, you're thinking about the, where to put the microphone and what it sounds like. And you forget that you're performing. So it's actually quite important, I think, to leave that to somebody else yes. and just just perform. And if I think back, you know, like, like go back to the town of Motown, you know, the best producers produced, the best musicians were the backing band, the best singers were the singers, the best writers were writing, and the best business bastards were doing the business. <laughs> and the, 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 you know what I mean? No one thought they could do everything. No. And, and, and try I not think, to... I think it's a sort of mistake to think you can kind of do everything. Yes, absolutely. I think with you know with David Bowie, you know, looking at his relationship and and the decades of different music and that period he had in the eighties, which was a bit tricky, and I think a lot of the artists who were, who had had their moment probably a little bit like their Zeitgeist moment before, in the eighties they got completely lost and decided to go with the trend and follow it. Like so, Bowie and I don't know. I wouldn't say Rod Stewart was great, but you know his eighties work and Robert Plant. You know, it was a little bit like yeah, you, you're kind of following him rather than leading it. And then when he started. Bowie working with Tony Visconti certainly kind of had somebody who knew what to do to get that. I know. think you need people that 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 understand where you're trying to go, but are also going to to sort of feed in their own ideas, which are going to open more doors for you. Because especially when you know this is our seventeenth album, um, so you know you you can get into habits, and producers can sometimes help you get out of that. You know. So when you did um like that the album between Dog and Wolf, you did that, but you did that sort of also in LA. So do you often like to? No, we of... didn't. We didn't. We did. I tell you what happened with Dog and Wolf was that it was a. The one thing about producers is that producers are producing lots of records, and one of the things they want to do is get it finished. Um, and they don't want to go up too many blind alleys because it takes time and they don't want to indulge them, you know, don't want to get terribly indulgent. And my, Dog and Wolf was a strange album. It was like we had a kind of bit of a gap. Our long-time manager and kind of guiding person, Tommy T, had died. And we had a fire in our studio in which we lost lots of archive stuff and lots of instruments. And, and uh, all this sort of happened in 2010, 11. We went through the whole 30th anniversary shenanigans and there was a movie made about us and all that kind of looking back. And then Kerry joined uh, as bass player and it was like a, a, a bit of a new beginning. And me and Michael had talked for a long time about layering drums, which we had done a bit before, but we'd never really, really got into. And we thought... We're going to make a kind of uh, we're going to make a studio album instead of like an album that we can go out and play live and it's a kind of live band in a room. We're going to make for the first time ever, really, for New Model Army, a real studio album. We're going to be really indulgent and we're going to take a long time because we're going to um, we're going to investigate ideas. But what we're going to do is we're not going to mix it. So we're going to throw loads of ideas at tape. 
and then we're going to find one of the world's greatest mixers to mix it. So we did that, and we, we started by recording a, dr- a week of drums at a quite a posh studio in London. And then we brought it back to our place in Bradford and, and just messed around for several months and built the rest in a very kind of studio-ish sort of way. And then we then we went and um, uh, we gave it to Joe Barese, who's probably best known for you know, Tool and Queens of Stone Age, and well, he's done lots and lots of lots and lots of very big rock records. Yeah. Um, we went we went over to Los Angeles and he mixed it in a couple of weeks. Um, and we thought actually he he would make a lot of selections and and throw lots of stuff away, but actually being an amazing mixer that he is, he managed to find space for kind of everything. <laughs> and it's a very it, it, it's a it sounds sounds amazing that album just from s- sort of sound quality. Um, yes, and uh, that's got a lot to do with Joe's Joe's mixing. This is interesting. But also, like I say, it's a very studio album. Having done that, and then we kind of repeated the trip with the sort of mini album between Wine and Blood. Then we thought, let's go back to being a band in a room. So we did Winter with Lee and Jamie and Lee's, and then we did from here with Lee and Jamie in Norway. What's next? I don't know. It seems to me that every album we do is a kind of reaction against the last one. And does it feel like the moment after that sort of break you had at the beginning of the decade that you're sort of back on track after having a horrendousness of a... You know, losing... Yeah, I, I, it was a bit of a back on track moment. We, we, we got serious about making records again. Just at the time when everybody said, oh, the album's dead. And we were going, no, it's not. Let's make real albums that have got a real character all the way through them. Um, they're not just a collection of songs, and they're well made. Instead of just, yeah, we can put an album out and it'll be all right. No, let's concentrate on making something that's actually a pleasure to listen to. Yes. Make it sort of sound, you know, sound a million dollars. And, and um, So we got serious about making albums. And I think Kerry's arrival was kind of helpful because he's a very sort of flexible musician. Um, yeah, and also, and, and, and I was going to say, and over the years, you know, you must have picked up a lot of kind of new influences and and ideas as well from sort of different things that have happened. Because one thing that came into my consciousness was, you know, my my parents were really into sort of, I would say, you know, that kind of country and western, which was kind of like oh, a bit tricky. And then I suppose there was that period. I suppose it might it might have been the nineties, I suppose, with old country. And I suppose again, John Peel was playing stuff, and there was people like Gillian Welsh and Stacey Earle and Alison Krauss, and then. Yeah, various people like that. And I just wondered if, if you also were starting to become more aware of other different sort of scenes that would be, you know... I'm always aware of stuff that's, that's out there. Well, no, I mean, obviously I'm not aware of everything that's out there. No. I listen to a, a radio station. Um, basically, I get most of my music from FIP, which is a French radio station, but you can get it on the internet. And it basically plays 24 hours a day music. Uh, anything released from 1920 to yesterday in any genre. Um, and you've got no idea what's coming next. And it's uh, there's very little talking. It's just music, 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 music. And 90% of what they play, I've never heard. I love that. Yes. I keep discovering new stuff on that. But so going back to what you were saying about Gillian Welsh, she is one of my big heroes. Yes, and I always remember the first time I ever heard her track called Revelator. I think that just was, you know, a game changer for me. I just thought, God, I love this artist so much. I absolutely adore her and and Dave Rawlings. Yes. Um, I've seen them a few times, actually. They have this perfect sort of synchronicity and 
and simplicity, but actually it's not really that quite that simple. Like all the best music, it sort of sounds very simple, but actually there's a huge amount of expertise within it. And she's a really good writer as well. I, I, I think she's a, you know, as a lyricist, I think she's brilliant. Well, I always thought the other person I taught was Joni Mitchell when I was growing up, because I think she was ma- managed to sort of put incredibly complex emotional um, feelings into quite extraordinary English, but it was very sort of clean and, and sort of, it wasn't complicated. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of hers as well. Hajira is my favourite of hers. Oh, yes. The Black Crow Flying. Yeah, that, that album, I think, is just sort of desperately melancholy and huge. <laughs> you know? Well, I suppose... I, it... I, 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 I like... One of the things that, that, that sort of uh, kind of brings us back to the From Here album is, is if you, you could say to some musicians, um, uh, you know, where would you most like to record? And, that, and they, would, they would say, you know, I want to go to Caribbean Island or I want to go to Los Angeles or, or somewhere, you know. And, and if you said to the five members of New Modellami, where would you like to go? I can't think of anywhere we'd rather go than somewhere cold, bleak and desolate on the edge of the world. You know, that's us. <laughs> and that kind of beauty of big, wide open, empty landscape. I, I sort of love that. And I think it runs through our music and we've done it sort of more so this time. Well, I suppose my favourite emotions are romantic melancholia. So, um, yes, anything like a, a sort of a visit to the beach on a grey day is quite enjoyable. Because yeah. actually, the other thing which was quite interesting was was having spoke to a lot of bands from the north. I suppose was this this studio was it Cargo Studio in Rochdale that everyone goes, my God, that is the studio. Did you ever? I know you don't want to talk about the past, but did you ever sort of manage to record anything? In the we fame. did record our very first single at Cargo Studios in Rochdale. Right, but uh, we, I won't dwell on it. But it was just one of, when you were just talking about you know places to go. I always remember so many people said, "God, that that space." Because I did um, John John Rob recently, and he said, "God, there's something there was something about the room that was just fantastic." And and you know, can't say I remember it actually. <laughs> no, but there you go. But with your you know, because you were talking about the album rather than just kind of this this idea of just streaming and this is a new album is obviously. Having grown up in that world of you know buying a vinyl record, which was often a, a long-term purchase of having to save the money, go and buy it, huge investment. Do you, did you also have that same kind of ethos of sort of having almost a side one and a side two with with sort of the albums that you're doing and this this one? No, that's kind I have of... to say, I sort of got gone. No, we didn't really have a side one, side two. We just had a bunch of songs, but we wanted them to. They they sort of sat together. And uh, and I wanted you know the sort of uh, how you put them together. Yeah, it's meant to be a kind of journey, isn't it? Yes. You know the, that sounds like track one. That sounds like the last track. And then you sort of what should be track three? Maybe that one. You know. And then you sort of yeah, there is there is millions. If you have twelve songs on an album, there is millions, millions of potential orders. Indeed, that is so true. That is the second part of my interview with Justin Sullivan from New Model Army. And the one thing that I'd forgot to mention was that I um, I remember seeing him, or them, supporting David Bowie in Berlin, I think in 1987, on the Glass Spider Tour, David Bowie's Glass Spider Tour. And that was Berlin's, I think, 600th anniversary. And... I was there. Anyway, I didn't tell Justin that exciting fact, and I can see why, because now I've said it, it's kind of boring. Anyway, look, we're going to play another track and then more chat. This is taken from a John Peel session recorded in 1984, and yes, you can guess what I'm going to play. This is Falkland Spirit. (laughs) 
Indeed, there you go. That is uh, New Model Army with a track titled Falkland Spirit, taken from a John Peel session recorded in 1984. And no, it wasn't engineered by Dale Griffith, but it could have been. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. I know I keep saying that. It's a bit tedious, so I'll stop. But this is going to be the third part of my interview with Justin Sullivan, where I had been talking about, um, yes, the creative process and also the um, ability, or not so much the ability, but the confidence not to worry about, um, yes, keeping songs edited down to two or three minutes. But, as I mentioned, 
about the last or the latest album titled From Here. The last track was uh, titled or is titled From Here and it's eight minutes, which is basically prog rock. And this was Justin's reply to that fascinating point. I know. Check me out. No, I don't think anything about it. No, I think what happens at the beginning is that they won't play it on the radio if it's more than three and a half minutes. And we think, well, they won't play it on the radio anyway because it's by us. So, so what the hell difference does it make? I think I think the thing about albums is that, and it doesn't, you know, streaming, you can stream an album the same way you can listen to it on vinyl, um, is that, you know, I, I think I've written this in some of the blurb that we've done for the album, but the the idea that people only want short hits, they only really want to listen to something for one and a half minutes and, and, and then click on to the next. But I'm not sure if that's entirely true, because if you look at what people watch, they like long series that have got kind of atmosphere um, and, and character, and, but particularly this idea of sort of atmosphere that they can get lost in, which is slightly otherworldly. And I think that's, a, you know, the purpose of music is not... Music is this strange, abstract m- magic, really, that can take you into, into another place. And if it's a place you like, then you kind of want to stay there, really. So you... So, so, so the idea of an album is very much, you know, you you, you create a world where where people go. Yes. Well, it's interesting, you know, because because that's a kind of conversation I've had with people and myself. Um, is is this kind of sense of content? Because actually, the one thing that I've noticed in the last five years is that this explosion of podcasts, and it is not like three, you know, because I was told, you know, you you can only do like th- you've got thirty seconds to grab the listeners' at- attention, and then after that, they're not going to be interested. I'll turn it off. And then I became more interested to listen to podcasts because you'd have kind of people discussing things in quite a lot of depth and there was no kind of actual time they didn't have to do it in three minutes or five or even 30 you know it just went until they finished and I realized that there's there's kind of possibly half the population and perhaps oneself that doesn't mind disposable kind of content because you can stream everything and everything's kind of accessible and then part of you know me and another you know, like 51% of the population quite likes content, you know, and it's like you want to sit down and concentrate on one thing rather than being distracted. So I think... I think things... Maybe that's why mainstream media has kind of collapsed because television and mainstream radio has got a kind of idea of how long things ought to be and how deep they should go, which is not like quick hit done. And neither is it any kind of depth. And it's a kind of nothing world. So people go to the internet for both. They go to the internet for the quick, you know, 15-second hit of something funny on YouTube. Or, or they go, and they also go to the internet for, for long, in-depth things. Yes. And uh, which, I... which television and mainstream radio don't, don't give you, really. I think you, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think listening to radio now, it seems a bit bizarre when they have, a, like, a news report or weather or traffic. Because you think, well, actually, you can get that on your phone, and it will be exactly what you want, not some vague weather plan or some breakdown. Yeah, the on news, the... In, the news in particular on television is unbearable. Yes, I mean, it never gives anything. Has never has any context. No, because basically, the mainstream media worked out years ago that the paying journalists does it. You know doesn't pay um, it's too expensive to do in-depth stuff so they just broadcast what they're given and what they're given 
is given to them by news agencies who are given it by people with an agenda. This is true. And you know what I mean? Is... So everything you see on the news comes with an agenda. Um, and you can see it and, it, and it's like painful to watch. Yes, because because having you know, because as you said, you know, not wanting to delve back into the past, but obviously having sort of gone through that eighties period with, you know, Thatcher and Re- Thatcher Reagan, you know, the whole Red Wedge period, and then sort of thinking things have changed, and then it's kind of almost mm, not the same, but it's kind of quite hyped up and quite tense again. That as a songwriter and and somebody who's kind of, you know, politically aware, you must also sort of feel with with you know this current album there's there's still a lot and future albums there's still a lot to sort of both get kind of stimulated but also probably scared by as well oh, i'm terrified and we're, we're entering something which is a line that i nicked and put on the album winter which is we're entering something called the age of consequence i saw someone write that it's like uh it's like people talking about brexit and stuff i mean it's can we have a bit of a wider context here? You know, the planet is facing... In my lifetime, 40% of everything else on the planet has died. And, and we're worried about Brexit and putting up barriers and walls and, 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 and my little country this and my little country that. It's kind of, come on. And I think that um, the thing about... Uh, I, I had a, a, a question in an interview the other day when somebody said... Um, don't you think it's a pity that artists, um, uh, uh, along with everybody else, are being, you know, encouraged to polarise? There is a, there is a, the world, the world is dividing into culture wars, and you're on one side or the other. You're either on the side of, you know, the the new right wing, or you're, uh, or you're not. Um, but I think that uh, from here, album is. Is taking us trying to take a step back out of it and look at a bigger picture, and trying to talk about a few universalities. I mean, there are kind of there is a there's a few um, there's a few sort of reference you know obscure references to to the Brexit Trump sort of nonsense, but um, generally speaking, you know, trying to take a when I was writing it. I, I really wanted to take a step back, and I think being in that place probably helped. Yes. Um, in the sense of you know seeing seeing the the bigger picture. So, so when you were doing the album, writing it, did you sort of? I mean, was a lot of people. I suppose I was just wondering, you know, because this, because as one gets older, sometimes things become. I wouldn't say more comfortable, but you you know you sort of don't feel quite so hand-to-mouth and just waiting for the doll check sometimes, which is often kind of a, a, a sort of romantic memory. But you sort of realise that, you know, one's quite, you know, got a bit more of a grip on, on certain things. But did you sort of also feel that, you know, as you were talking about environmental issues, I think that, that things were also going absolutely arse up and we were all slightly kind of, you know, within a very few decades, you know, things are almost looking quite apocalyptic in places. Singing about it for quite a long time, so I'm sort of, yeah, I'm sort of very. Uh, well, everybody's aware of that, but I suppose the the, the privilege of, of of being a you know being in a band that that um, makes a living from it, that most people go to go to work, and they come home and they're tired, you know, they get up early, they work hard all day, they come home, they're tired, they don't. 
actually have much time to think. Um, yes. And when they get home in the evening, you know, there's kids and there's uh, meals and there's television and there's, you know, and they go to bed and the next morning they get up and work. And they don't have hours just to lie there and think. And there's so many possible distractions. I mean, you could, turn, you know, look at your, turn the phone on and you can be bombarded with more information or more entertainment or whatever it is you're looking for. But people don't actually just sort of stop and just let their minds wander. Yes. Even children true. don't so much anymore as, as we did when we were when we were young. And I think that's a pity. And and like I say, the the great privilege of being in, in you know, in a band is that we do have that time to think. There's a lot of time when you're just staring out of windows of moving vehicles or you know well, I remember, around the hotel room. Well I suppose childhood with me I can talk for myself. You know, there was a lot of times when you were quite bored because there wasn't actually that many things to do and, and one's parents were often quite busy and there was no money particularly, you know, so it wasn't the case that, you know... Yeah, but, you... Then, but, then you, but then don't you develop an internal world from that? Oh, God, yeah. And I wasn't saying bored as in a bad thing. It was like you'd be a bit bored and then your mum would say, well, go and play and then you'd have to go and invent something for the afternoon, which was... I grew up in a village and there was a, a World War II aerodrome and there was kind of a river or brook that we... and trees to climb and, you know, we played football in a field. You know, it was... So, yeah, one didn't become bored for too long because there was nobody to be bored to or with. You had to sort of go, well, that's fine. My, you know, my parents are busy and now... Yeah, I grew up in the same kind of environment, really. Yes, and, yeah. and so, you know, and then I remember there was somebody... I, actually, it was on Cheers, someone said... A bored person is a boring person, which I thought was so true, because you have to sort of then, like like you said, you invent a world for yourself to be part, you know, to do. So it's always kind of weird when people haven't got that emotional self-containment. The, the older you get, the more you see connections between everything, the more you learn. First of all, it's very true, that old maxim, you know, the, the more you learn, the more you realise you know nothing. That's true. But you do learn some things and you start to see patterns and then you see, start to see the links between everything. Um, uh, and that makes the world much richer um, but, once you start to see all the sort of patterns and links. And, and, but uh, but with, your, with you now, are you, do you sort of feel like you've got, in a weird way, less to prove? Because when you're younger, you often need to sort of... One is often trying yeah. to be a little bit more... I think, that, I, I think that's probably fair. I think that's true. But I think that's been true for 30 years. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, you know, we, yes. had our, we had our 15 minutes of being, you know, uh, this year's band in, the, the, in 1984. And, and then it was over. And then we've just gone our own way. And did we... I was having a, a long chat. We played with the Idols the other day at some festival in Austria. I was chatting to, I can't remember his name now, the singer. And uh, and he was talking about, you know, they're, they're in the middle of their 15 minutes. Um, they're, you know, everybody, they're, they're the cool band of the year or last year, or, you know, they're, they're in the middle of everybody wants them at the moment. And he was saying, he, he's, a, he's a wise man. He was already sort of looking beyond that, going, what happens after that? Yes. You know, and I said, don't worry, after that, you just do what the hell you like. Yeah. Something Neil Young once said a long time ago, is if you, if you just follow your star for long enough, eventually people learn to trust you. And I think that's kind of true. And, mm. we, and, and we've been in a... I think it was also a kind of punk rock attitude we had in the early days that 
that whatever the audience want, Sodom, you know, don't <laughs> give it to them. Um, so if any song ever threatened to become bigger than the band, um, you know, in, in the UK, it was probably the Vengeance in the early days, and then it was 51st State sort of internationally and Vagabonds and stuff like that. Uh, any song that, that, that threatened to become like a, a, the, the theme of an Imodlami, our response was just to stop playing it. That's that's very for like five that's, year, for five years or something. That's and everybody very, goes, that's commercial suicide, and it was because you know we've never made millions, um, but we're still here, and I think that uh, and we've we've got to a point where you know we've got an audience that are kind of interested in what we do and where we're going, and and um, and they're prepared to go with us. Yes. You know, we're not stuck playing anything. There's nothing we you know when we go on stage. There's nothing we have to play. And your audience are happy. Yeah, we, we, we sort of know that there's, there's ten big songs from from over the years, you know, we probably ought to play two of them. Yes, absolutely. But well, which ones? I think we'll have a break there, more music, then more chat. But this is a track, I think you'll know it. I'm sure you'll know it, actually, if you're a fan. This is called The Hunt. Everybody. 
There you go. That's new model new model army with a track titled The Hunt. This is David Eastall, the C86 show. This is going to be the last part of my interview with Justin, where I had also been talking about um, a recent interview I did with Richard Strange from Doctors of Madness. And he said that uh, they were two years too early for the world of punk rock, which he was slightly relieved about because he realised his life would then have been sort of going through that karaoke years and playing those one or two big hits. And this was Justin's response to that fascinating point that I just made. Justin, take it away. But it is a choice. I mean, it's like, the you know, probably our most commercially successful record was Tunnel Consolation. And, and we're always being offered huge amounts of money to go and do the Thunder and Constellation revisited tour. <laughs> and we could, but we have no interest. So it's like, uh, you know, which is more important? You know, what do you want to do? Do you want the money or do you want to just do what you want to do? Um, and well, we, money, was, money was never the kind of... Um, it was always down the list for us, which always, which always confused every record company we were ever with because they would always try to show us how we could be more successful and make more money. And we'd always turn around and say, well, that's not the point, is it? No. But it's interesting you mentioned Neil Young, because he was one of those people who I always remember you know, watching an interview with him, and he said, you've got to follow your moves. And there were times when he was going to make it. I could see the members of Crosby, Stills and Nash were going, oh, my God, Neil, just stick with us. And he was like, I don't really feel like it. I'm going now. And doing some obscure album. And then you had David Bowie doing the Low album, which at the time... <laughs> Is kind of the one guy from that generation that's still really relevant, I think. Yes. Still really compelling. Still really, uh, just really good. I've seen him a few times in the last few years, and every time he's just been really compelling. But he hasn't played lots of old stuff. You know, he's just done what he wants to do. But then when you when you look at it, you had people like, you well, still, you know, like Van Morrison... Bob Dylan, who still have that kind of cheeky awkwardness, which they probably, I don't know, you know, I could imagine they quite like the fact that they can get, they can do anything they want, and they do, because they just think, well, fuck you, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do yep. what you want, and I'll play it in the way I want it. And you'll you'll love it and probably hate it, but you'll love it at the same time, because, you know, I've created it. I mean, because the other thing that I notice. Most bands have a five-year narrative, you know, and I suppose, you know, from that kind of period that I was often talking about, the 80s, you know, they'd have a 12 months getting together, they'd make a single, John Peel played it, they'd do a session, the album, then the tricky out second album. If anyone ever does America, it seems to go badly, and then it all goes wrong. So, you know, the fact that you've managed to get through not just that five-year period and then think, sod it, but decades. And also the thing that knocks, knock, knocks a lot of bands out isn't, it's the business, either the dynamics amongst themselves or, or the fact that they just haven't made any money. And then also the other thing is the kind of musical trend. And you mentioned that you didn't really have that problem because you just didn't particularly feel like you fitted in anywhere. So you must well, feel... Well, I think that was the, it wasn't that the point of punk rock. I mean, there's a terrible misnomer about punk rock these days that it's a form of music. But if you go back to the end of the 70s, it wasn't a form of music at all. It was a, it was a cultural revolution which re, reaffirmed the basic principle that the spirit with which you do something is more important than the technical expertise. So some people went back to kind of garage music because that was easy to play. Um, but, but, but other people were doing, you know, standing up in 
pubs and doing poetry with spoons and, and, you know, anything, anything, everything, spirit. It was all about the communication of spirit. And from that, there were all the bands that sort of came out of that, ran with the principle that there are no rules, it's just spirit. It's just to do with communication of spirit. And there are no rules. And and so, you know, The Cure came from that, Depeche Mode came from that, the, all, all, lots of bands that are still kind of out there doing interesting stuff, Killing Joke, came out of that sort of basic principle, we're just going to do what we want to do and so the rest of them. Yes. Uh, and But there was then this, this thing in, in the early 80s, which it came later, which is the idea of the crystallisation of punk rock into a form of music where you have to play both saw guitars and shout a lot. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it in itself, but it's a, it's a shame that it's a kind of it's very limited, deliberately limited. Uh, I see that in in sort of you know the, it's true in all these genres. There's a kind of limitations of what you're allowed to do, but if you step outside that, you can just do what you like. Yes, absolutely, and and also in a bizarre way, we we were sort of slightly blessed with a kind of a gate you know with certain gatekeepers. Now not everybody had a great time, but I know. I was one of those people who just loved John Peel. Now, I obviously interviewed a few people who John Peel didn't play, and, and so they feel a bit irritated by it. But obviously that kind of gives people that, like, oh, that's fantastic. You know, somebody who's not only listened to my work, they're going to play it on their station and possibly get that John Peel session, which is which is a kind of a great thing because it gives people that bit more access to a larger community. And then, you know, in a very simplified form you know, then they were like flying from the nest and it was up to them to take the next route. But, you know, it was that kind of really nice jolt or that little push that that was kind of so important about that kind of particular period as well. Yeah, I think so. Yes. He did, he did play us, bless him. He did. He did a job. He did, until, he did until we were on EMI and he, went, he, we, he, came, to, he came to do a show at Bradford like a DJ show at the university where he played lots of records that none of the students wanted to hear. Um, and uh, and we just signed to EMI at that point. He said, and I went up to say, you know, thank you for playing some of our early stuff. And he said, I'm on e- you're on EMI now. I said, yeah. He said, I can't play you anymore. I went, that's fine. And he said, but I still love what you do. <laughs> which is great. Which yeah, is yeah, nice... yeah, fine. Yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's a fine fan. Now, with the tour, which is coming up, which is all very exciting, um, a few people I spoke to are feeling a bit sort of worried about their career. You know, these are like people like Fish and the God, you know, members of the Godfather, because the European side of the the tour is incredibly important. So, you've managed to sort of slip this in before the thirty first of October. Was that a? <laughs> <laughs> that was just by chance. Maybe we won't be able to get back in. Yes. So that oh, was. God knows. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, ask any musician. Say this is ludicrous. We love the fact that we can just drive out of, um, you know, just drive and play shows, and and there's no paperwork. Yes. And there's going to be paperwork. <laughs> All these people that say, "Oh, Brexit would be great because uh, there'll be less paperwork," and you're going, "You're kidding." <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. So that um, was that was just purely, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, it's funny, yeah. Of course, the, the European bit stops on the 31st of October. Who knows what's going to happen? Yes. I'm sure planes won't fall out of the sky. I think that um, the, that, that it's just... it's just. Yeah, I'm not going to go on about it. No. 
It's all it's all for nothing. No one really no one really cared much before the referendum. This because a... because they didn't see that 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 Europe made a huge amount of difference either one way or the other. And it didn't. I mean, you know, everything that's gone wrong with this country is forty years of Tory rule with a bit of a new Labour in the middle of it. Yes. But the thing we, we, we sometimes forget, or we completely forget, apart from when there's anniversaries, is that we haven't been actually had a war with anybody in Europe since 45. So that, that's something we like. People take a lot of things for granted until it goes wrong. And then it's like, but why is this happening? It's, like... it's interesting at the moment that, that people um, are, are, are esteemed new prime minister up, up there with it. And they like using the language of war very much. Um, uh, I think they've kind of just forgotten where that shit leads. Yes. You know, the, the complacency, like you say. It's a very complacent world. And then you come back to the UK for November, which will be interesting, and probably almost up there with those kind of political, you know, I don't know, it could be a rallying call. And then you're off to Turkey, Istanbul. Istanbul. So do you just have the occasional, God, we've got a gig out there, let's go. Um, yeah, we do play Turkey every now and again. We've 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 got quite a following out there. Um, we've got followings in, in strange places: Brazil, Turkey. Um, never done much in the Far East, um, but some other, you know, um, South America. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and and occasionally, you know, Mexico can suddenly take someone to their heart and sort of. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever do? I mean, do you, the other thing that you know, and I mentioned America was that a you know, a sort of a... We've done, we've done, we had a, a phase of doing America and then we kind of stopped for 10 years because um, it doesn't, you know, it's just a, the money is a problem. I mean, American work permits are the biggest problem. Um, yes, and yeah. this is what we're praying doesn't happen, you know, it's not required in, in to tour in Europe in the future. Um, American work permits are very, very expensive and very complicated to get. Um, and they, you know, it makes things very difficult. Yeah. Uh, but we'll probably go back to America at some point. Uh, we haven't been for a few years now. But, and but we, did a, we did a lot of tours. There. We did quite about six or seven tours there during the zeros, if you call them the zeros. The zeros. It's better than the teenies. No, the noughties. Um, yes, that's true. So... That's great. This is brilliant. Well, thank you a lot. I was going to say something else there. Oh, yes, that's it. Sorry. <laughs> so when you, yeah, so that's kind of curious. I mean, with, with your audience, obviously you've probably got people who have been with you all the time. Are you still sort of finding new members, you know, who are coming out for the first time thinking, my God, you either discovered us for yourself or you're the, the children of the, the original fans that we yeah, had? People are always asking me about the audience as if I interview each one as they come in. Yes. I don't know. Uh, I mean, you see some familiar faces uh, and people drop off. You know, people t people follow tours, but it's not the same people each time. No. You know, people t follow tours for a while and they drop off or they come back later. I mean, there's, a, you know, things change for people. There, there are people that were kind of fans when they were young and then they went off and got jobs and children and family life and that made, different. you know, touring, you know, following a band difficult and then the children grow up and then suddenly um, they've got a bit more time to go out in the evenings perhaps um, or sometimes the children come and um, and then sometimes young people discover us 
however they discover us and they come along. I mean, it's a very kind of mixed audience. I always... Uh, I, I, I talk to other singers sometimes, and they always talk about the audience. But I never really see the audience as kind of sort of one thing. Yes. And we've never done that thing that unite the audience. You know, everybody say, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Everybody clap along. No, 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 no. Because I always think they're all individuals with different backstories and different lives and different needs from the music and different favorite songs and different ways of responding. You know, and some people want to, you know, dance in the pit down the front and, and, and other people want to just stand at the back in the corner and, and get into the music or, or whatever. And I think that, that they're all kind of different sorts of people, different ages, different, you know, different backgrounds, different, different backstories. Yes, and it sounds from what you're saying, you know, how you're talking, is that the, the the space or the place that you're in emotionally now is as good as you've ever been. Oh, you get me on a good day. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you, you, you also, you know, you as a band, as a band, very much so. I think that this this five piece uh, of New Model Army is the easiest to work in. Because we're all very flexible, and no one's got, you know, big ego problems, and and everyone's kind of, um, uh, yeah, open. And we find working together pretty easy, and we, and pleasurable actually. We don't spend much time socially outside the band, not at all. And maybe that's a good thing. That's probably. And then when we come <laughs> together, we all enjoy being with each other. Yes. And and working together is pretty easy. Um, and somebody said to me, uh, don't you think that having some tension within the band helps, you know, helps generate the, the angst in the music? I'm going, no, not really. I there's enough tension everywhere around you. If you want, if you want tension, just look at, you know, look around you. Yes, that's, um, that's probably but, uh, it. Actually working with other people, if it's reasonably easy, I think that's, that's, that's helpful. And when we were talk, I was talking to Lee. Lee was, you know, one of the producers on the way up to Norway. Most people flew, but me and Lee drove, which is a three-day drive. And we were talking about, you know, making the record and stuff. And um, and we made a rule that no one was allowed to say no. So if anyone had an idea, we had to try it before we dissed it. God, that was a really good. That was a really good rule. I thought it was really helpful. It's not a bad rule for life, generally, actually. That's so very you good. You can try something, and then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And then you go, no. But but you're not allowed to say no just by the, you know hearing it, not liking the idea until you've actually heard it. Wow. That's a very good thing to do, actually. I'll make a note of that, actually. I mean, when you... I mean, I know you don't want to talk about the past, but was there ever a period where you felt like you were losing it, you know, like the band or just... There were times, there were a lot, quite a lot of times looking back where we were not a happy band. We were not getting on with each other. We were pulling in different directions. We were not speaking to each other. We were not, yeah, quite a lot of times like that. Yes. Cause I... Uh, and if I think back to, yeah, you know, when were you most successful? Well, probably the early 90s, we were at our, you know, biggest in terms of audience numbers. And, um, and actually, that's when I was at my most miserable. I didn't. I don't think I really enjoyed that, and I, I kind of uh, now seems pretty good, really. 
Yes. Well, I, I suppose, um, yes, having, like I mentioned, you know, being obsessed with David Bowie from a very long, young age and then sticking with him. But that, you know, his 80s period, you know, he probably went, yeah, I'm kind of glad that's not, <laughs> I'm glad I got through it and I can be more of an artist that I want to be and not chase chase the sort of a big crowd, I suppose. It's like, I've done that, tick, now I need to just go and get back and get I a proper life. To do with relationships have a have a have a kind of within bands anyway they have they go through changes but sometimes they you know you 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 grow apart and then it's not a bad thing to separate yes like i say we we've had this thing where basically it's every 5 or 10 years somebody new arrives and it's very good for us i would imagine that is good. I know, I mean, you know, I know Joseph Porter from Blythe Power said it took him a long time to to work out that really he'd rather it, like, this is really my band. I've had enough of the democratic kind of trying to give everybody their say because it always felt a bit like it would just become more difficult and then egos. And it was like, well, actually, if I can just be Blythe Power and make the decisions, it's going to make life a lot easier but it took him three decades to work that out. I mean, do you sort of have a little no, bit... No, I don't. I've never got that. I never, never even approached that feeling. I, I desperate, I'm rubbish on my own, and I need other people to bounce off. Now, they have to be the right people, but, but I need other people around me. I'm not good on my own. I'm not good at making decisions. I have a lot of ideas. I don't know which the good ones are and which the bad ones are, and I need people around me that I trust to tell me which are the good ones and which are the bad ones. Yes. Which is, which is probably, yes. You know, and I also, I mean, that, and that's suggesting that I have all the ideas and I don't. I, I'm very open, to, you know, very open to, to ideas. I think as a band, we're always like that. It's like, it's like um, if you listen to New Model Army Records, you've got no idea who's playing the guitar because everybody in the band plays guitar. And on the record, whoever plays that part best plays it or whoever writes that part, and it might be any member of the band, they play it. Do you know what I mean? So yes. we're kind of open to, to wherever, the, wherever the good ideas come from. And generally speaking, we, that's what I mean about this band being easy to, to work in, in the sense of we're kind of, uh, you know, we're all sort of open to each other, uh, each other's ideas. Um, and then we'll go, yeah, we like that idea, or we don't like that idea. And we tend to agree. And do you feel once this this kind of the the album? I know it's only just coming out, and you've got a tour. But do you feel the energy and the creativity that you know you're going to have next year? You know, you'll be able to sort of, you know, another album is going to be bubbling away quite soon. Yeah. There's there's no yeah. kind of um, well. I suppose uh, sometimes people get exhausted. Think I'm not doing this again. But you don't sound like you have that at all. You feel like. You know. No, I think I think I think we're full of ideas. Yes, which is which is a great place. Well, look, Justin, thank you ever so much for taking the time on a on a. Um, actually, just one question, Jesus, sorry. Just what what would you? I mean, I often ask people, you know, what would you say to your eighteen year old self? But what would you kind of what thing have you picked up in your life that you think? Oh my God, that is that that is just 
something that I wished I knew or that's something that I've learned that I didn't know when I was kind of 18. I mean, I know people wouldn't say, you know, like tell an 18-year-old what to do, but just one bit of a, you know... <laughs> one... Everybody's always trying to tell 18-year-olds what to do. It's pointless. Yeah, it's totally pointless. But I just wondered if you thought, God, yeah, that's a learning curve in my life. I've just kind of, that was something that, yes, that... that there come... were quite a lot of big learning curves, actually. Um, uh, I look back over it. You know, people that 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 we've worked with that have taught me stuff. I think probably the biggest single one was working with Glyn Johns on Ghost of Cain, where I was uh, very concerned with being the 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 meanest, fastest. Um, you know most emotionally extreme band, you know, putting it out there and, and all that kind of absolute, everything went by an absolute adrenaline rush. And Glyn was trying to um, say, hold on a minute, this is about music. And, you know, music is something else. Yes. It's not that that you're talking about. And And I think that was probably the biggest learning curve. I mean, I have really good people around me over the years. Um, you know, I started with Jules um, in, the, in the very beginning. Um, you know, Robert. Uh, um, just just good people around me that have taught me lots. Yes. If I've learned anything. Oh, what did I hear the other day? I, like, I particularly like this. The, the, the key to a happy life is good health and a bad memory. <laughs> That's so good, actually, because often it's the stories we tell ourselves that create this narrative, and they're not always good. So actually, sometimes burn in the past. Well, I can't remember half the past. I, I'm sort of not really looking forward to next year and, and, and people talking about 40 years of the Immortal Army particularly. I, you know, I'd rather go forward. Yes, this is true. And it sounds and, like... And, and like I say, I can't remember half of it anyway. Which is better. I guess you don't recognise your younger self then. But not having to prove that you've got to be the hardest, fastest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You stop having to prove. I think. I think when you're young, you go, "I don't care what anybody thinks about me." But you really, really, really do. You really want people to think you're clever and and sexy and 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 brilliant and 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 all those things that that we need to feel when we're, you know, first becoming into the world. Um, and I remember. It happened for me around the time of four, I was 40 or something like that. I remember waking up one morning and thinking, you know what, I really don't care, actually. Apart from the people very close to me, you know, do, do I care whether the world loves New Model Army? Nah, not really. You know, we love New Model Army. We love what we make. And it's not perfect, but some of it's pretty bloody good. And, uh, and that's enough. Yes, that is enough. That's more. Th well, look, Justin, thank you ever so much. I mean, you know what? I've, I mean, I've only heard bits of the new album, but it does sound fantastic. And obviously it's the sort of never arriving. That was the uh, song that I've been playing a lot. And it does sound stunning. It does really does. It do sound vital, exciting. And um, yeah, you, you must be really pleased. Yeah, I think that this is the most fun album to make that we've ever made. The most enjoyable nine days in a studio I've ever had. And that 
is only a good thing. You might as well have a good time, really. <laughs> if you can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, stop worrying about... Stop worrying so much. I think that's what I tell my 18-year-old self. But as, as, as you know, you can always tell 18-year-olds that. Don't worry so much. No. Yes. I think when I think that's one thing that you learn about getting as you get old is that, that that when you're young you're very very you really want success in all its various different forms and you really scared of failure. And as you as you grow up in your life some things go right and some things go wrong. Um you know in your job or your relationships or whatever. And you work out that that success doesn't make everything all right forever. It's like a nice moment, yes, and then it's past. But it doesn't make everything okay, and failure isn't the end of the world. It doesn't. It doesn't poison everything forever. Well, it's so interesting. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Just the last bit. I remember sort of seeing this guy called Michael Reynolds, who used to build. We well, still does build these kind of earth ships. They're made out of tires and bottles, and it took him a long time to get it right. But he said. <clears throat> What he wanted was the freedom to fail, because every time he he built one of these things and it failed, he would build the next one better, and that would slightly be, you know, that would be okay, but still. So he just kind of, I know it was a bit of a little catchphrase of his, but I liked it, because when you were at school, failure was like such a bad thing, rather than, well, that's okay, you had a go, it didn't work out, try it again, but next time, you know, just tweak it a bit, and that's mostly is what you need, and I... But it's better to have a go and fail than to sit there. Yeah, just if be... I look back over, you know, over, if I do look back over, you know, 17 albums, um, I go, oh, we could have done that better. Oh, we could have done that better. Oh, that should have been rewritten. Oh, we could have performed that better in the studio. Oh, you know, oh, we should have changed that bit. And every now and again, I go, you know what, we got that bit right. That's really good. And there's some songs where you go, yeah, that's really good. That's just how it should have been. Um, and basically, you do that all the way through your life, don't you? You, you? you have a shot at something. You put your heart and soul into it. And every now and again, you get it right. And that's about as good a feeling as there is. And, and often, you get it wrong. And you just kind of live with that, don't you? That's kind of just being human. This is true. And you, and you didn't have a Trevor Horn production on any of your albums, which that 80s sound was never going to be a winner, was it really? Well, we had some dodgy 80s production here and there, I think. We had some <laughs> dodgy production here and there all the way, all the way along, you know. But, yes. uh, uh, every, like I say, if I look back, I, I can see moments at all stages where we did something and we got it right. And then next to it, there's something, ah, we could have done that better. Well, it's interesting because a lot of people, and Neil Young is one of them, and you mentioned, sort of often doesn't ever play those records once he's finished. But, you know, that's quite a rare person. But I suppose he is often looking at the next work so intently that, and he's not that interested because it's, he's so... No, I understand that. I don't play old Neil Young records very often. And 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 from here, um, I did actually listen to um, last week, but I didn't listen to it three months after we finished. I really didn't want to hear it. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, and and I probably won't listen to it again for, you know, a year or something. But then you'll be playing a bit of it live, I guess. So. Yeah, and I quite look. That's what I'm looking forward to is is how different the songs will be by Christmas, 
Because when you first, in the old days, you would go out on the road, you'd write a song, you'd go out on the road, you'd play it, and that was really good for the song, actually, that you would get a feeling of how it was to play live. And then you'd go and record it. But now you can't do that, because if, if we play something new, the next morning they're discussing whether they like it or not in California. Do you know what I mean? It's a sort of instant, 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 and it just goes round, and everybody has access to it whenever they want. And they, you know, by the time the album comes out a year later, they've already heard that song four million times, and then they're going, "Oh, I like the live version better," or you know. So you, so now you don't play stuff live really before you record it. Um, but that has the advantage of now we're going to go and play it live. And I know that by Christmas, the songs are going to be completely different. They're going to develop into something else. So if well, you... That's quite, that's quite exciting. Yeah, but if you were to record those records after this tour that you've been playing live, would they? do you think they would sound much different? Yeah, they probably would, a bit. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we usually do live albums every three years or so. And... Um, and the, yeah, the, the songs have always sort of changed, really, from from what was originally recorded. Because, um, just last thing, I know D- David Bowie. There was a sorry to keep going kind of on about David Bowie, but you know, he, David Bowie. Yeah, but then, but there was like when he did Love and the Alien on one of his last tours, he said this is what it should have sounded like when we recorded it and and mixed it in the eighties. But I think this time we've got it right. I just wondered if there's any songs that you that you do now that you think actually this is. The, this is the song what it should be now this this is which is going to be different or is different to what it was yeah in the sometimes sometimes we take a song and, and 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 it develops into something else yeah i know because it was interesting i just because i know Joni mitchell but i don't what, but i never want to go back and re-record it no i think that's a mistake i think you just play it live the way you want to play it and uh, and there are live albums and god knows there's enough bootlegs out there on people's phones um but I don't think you should go back and re-record it. But I suppose, I remember when Joni Mitchell did a live album, not recently, about 10 years, 15 years ago, of some of her early stuff, and because of age and stuff, that those songs had such a different, it had such a different vibe and spirit, you know, because of she, you know, picked up decades of experience and, you know, it's coming to the, I suppose, without too, being too morbid about the end of her life. So some of those lyrics she, she sung when she was 20 suddenly sounded very different when she was in her 60s plus because it was suddenly, it did really feel kind of melancholic, which was nice, but it was kind of depressing at the same time, which I quite enjoyed, don't, don't get me wrong. So, <laughs> but yeah, I just wondered if, you know, you would sort of think, God, if I sung those now and put a live album out, you know, that, that, would, that, would, have a, that would have a bit of a different gravitas. gravitas. Yeah. Tricky. Probably. One. Possibly. Anyway, it's another it's another one. And that really is going to be the last part of my interview with Justin Sullivan from New Model Army. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. It's always nice. Keep it positive. Keep it groovy. That's always good. Anyway, I'll leave you with another track by the band. Have a great week. Oh yeah, and this is a track from the new album, End of Days. Take it away. Take it away. Take it somewhere.
Days, slow motion unfolding.
children. 